your passage of scripture, John 14, I am, I have a very brief word uh, this morning as we are excited about hosting uh, Jenny and Chris and Jude a little later for lunch, and I purposely did not eat breakfast so that I would be hungry, so when I minister to you, I would be feeling what you're feeling, so if your stomach is growling, my stomach is growling, if you've got to go to the bathroom, I've had three cups of coffee, I've got to go to the bathroom, so we're all, we're all in the same boat together, we're all in the same boat together. John 14 and 12, very, very, verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do, because I go to my Father, which is in heaven. If you have been around me for any season of time, and Pastor Ron, I was reflecting this week as Chris and Jenny came and honored the house that they went to school, they dated, they, they courted, they married, uh, there are over a hundred ministries in the nation today that was birthed out of this house. And two of those pastor churches of over 2,000. And so we are excited that this is kind of a, a, a training ground or a learning place or a place where we come to church to practice on one another. And as we, pra- as we practice on one, loving them and caring about them and praying for them, then as we get that practice down, we take it to the street and we begin to practice on the world. We are a light in a dark place. We are a city set upon a hill. We are salt. We are to make people thirsty, to lead them towards Jesus, the water, the living water. And that's our purpose and that's our goal. If I had a sermon title or sermon thought today, it would simply be expecting more, expecting more. Uh, if, you have re- if you've read the, Sh- the Shemitah by uh, Jonathan Kahn or you've read The Harbinger by Jonathan Kahn, you will know that most Bible scholars believe that we are in the last of the last of the, of the hour that approaches the apocalypse. The apocalypse determines what will take place in the last days. And we have been learning about prophecy. We've been learning about the last days. We've been learning about the rapture of the seals, the trumpets, the vials, all the things that are going to take place and, and happen. And probably this generation will witness that on this side of the grave. You will not die, but you will actually see probably the Lord coming in the clouds of glory, riding on a white horse. I thought about Chris today on his wedding. Instead of the bride making a big uh, uh, appearance, Chris came in riding on a white horse. And how cool is that? Something unexpected. But that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be unexpected, except to those that are watching and waiting for the return of the Lord. We talked last week looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I, I, I have found myself in a place lately and that might be because deep calls to deep. Christine and I went to uh, Florida, spent a couple of days with Pastor Billy. And then in China Hill, I spent a couple of days with Pastor Billy and watched some of the miracles and some of the transitions and some of the things take place. And I noticed that when Pastor Billy has a service, people go expecting to receive something. They're not just coming to be another brick in the wall, not just coming to be sitting on a chair, but they actually come expecting God to do something for them so that hopefully they could do something for somebody else. When Jesus said, the works that I do shall ye do also, if it, if it did not come from the mouth of Jesus, it would almost be blasphemy to compare ourselves with God and the things of God and the things that Jesus did. But it came from his mouth, so we've got to believe it, understand it, and learn how to walk in it. The things that Jesus did are the things that he wants us to do. There are 37 miracles in the first four Gospels, the first chapter of Acts. There are 34 miracles that Jesus did, Jesus provided, and, and, and was, was uh, operating in. 
And the Bible says in John, the 20, the last chapter of the last verse of the Bible says, if all of the miracles that Jesus did was written down, the libraries of the world could not contain all the miracles, all the stuff that he did. So we have some choice miracles that God chose us and, and gave us to, to, to thump some of the disciples. So today, my heart, my spirit, I like to see a miracle every time I come to the house of God. Would that not encourage you? That excites you. But you know, when you realize who you are and what you are and where you came from and how you got here, you are a walking miracle. The, re the way your body does what it does, your brain does what it does, the blood, the oxygen, you are a walk. So every day that you wake up and get out of bed and your feet hit the floor, you are a miracle. Do I have a friend in the house this morning? That was kind of weak, my friends. Oh, there they are. They match my coat. Oh, tough time today. Have a look, look good. Look good. Our Facebook friends, you missed all that. Just give me a moment here. In the Gospel of John, there are seven miracles listed. Four of the miracles listed are not found anywhere else in the gospel, but only John tells the story. Of the seven miracles, I bring attention to the first one where Jesus actually turned the water into wine. Uh, if you've been around me very long, you will know that I'll make the statement that Jesus walked past the water and the water blushed and became wine. And ironically, I was reading a book yesterday that that very thought, that very idea of the water blushing and becoming wine. And I'm going to talk in just a few minutes about the, the amazing miracle of water turning into wine. In some research, I found that the largest library in the world is found in Washington, D.C. And I have learned that that library contains 35 million books, 13.6 million photographs, 6.5 million pieces of sheet music, and 5.4 million maps are recorded in that library. Every day, 11,000 new entries become a part of that library. You can also go to that library and you can get the phone book of your great, great, great grandma, their mailing address and their phone number going back four generations. I would say that is quite a library. That's quite a collection of stuff. Look at somebody say stuff. But the Bible says in the book of John that if everything that Jesus did was written down and recorded, the libraries of the world could not contain the books that record the events of what he did. A lot of people believe that miracles are of last year, yesterday, the New Testament. But the word says that these signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands upon the sick and they shall recover. I think a challenge sometimes in the, in the body of Christ is that we come to a place where things stop us from believing that God actually wants us to do something or God will do something for us. There are two reasons I believe that you do not get miracles in everyday life. Reason number one is called subliminal skepticism. And a perfect example would be Thomas. Thomas walked with God. He saw the miracles of God. He heard all the reports. He was eyewitness to uh, several things. But Thomas said, if I don't put my hand in the nail prints that his hands and his feet and aside that I'm not going to believe. We are a generation because of whatever reason, we've come to a place where we believe that miracles no longer take place. Miracles no longer exist. 
And ironically, even, ironically, even those that have been serving God a long time have a tough time believing that God has worked a miracle in their life. Several years ago, my mom had some tests, and, and it was determined that there was cancer in her body, and they began to attack that cancer, and they began to apply medicine towards that cam- cancer. We begin to pray. We begin to seek God. Just a few months ago, mom went to the doctor, and the doctor told her there was no cancer in her body. We cheered. We clapped. But for several weeks, mom had a tough time believing that she was healed. And finally, I told her, I said, Mom, the same doctor that told you that you had cancer is the same doctor that told you you don't have cancer. So sometimes it's easier to believe the negative report than it is to believe the good report. The second reason why that we don't see a lot of miracles in our life today is because of dormant disappointment. What is dormant disappointment? I have, I have a connection on Facebook. Uh, ironically, most of you know my parents took me out of public school in 10th grade because the drugs had got so bad in the public system, and they put me in a private school, an Assembly of God school, not realizing that the Assembly of God school was full of kids that had been kicked out of public school for drugs and alcohol. How crazy is it? Do I have a, do I have a witness? Can, can anybody relate to that? And the, the thing about dormant disappointment is in this connection that I made with this kid that went to the same school that I went to, when his baby was two, she got sick. And he made uh, many vows to God. He made many promises to God. And he begged God for a miracle. And, and the baby died. And that gentleman today is a self-pronounced atheist. He actually is very educated, and if you you and I were to talk to him on an intellectual basis, he would probably out-talk us, he would out-phrase us, he would out-communicate us, because that's what he does, that's what he is. And so on the Facebook, just some different things were happening, and I just finally just told him who I was and what I believed in. He is very, he is respectful to me, he's respectful to others concerning me, but he told me, he said, when my baby died, I realized there was no God. And a lot of times when God does not answer every prayer and God does not open every door and God does not fix every problem, if we're not careful, the enemy would like to put in our brain, God no longer does miracles, God no longer heals, God no longer restores. But if it's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13 and 8, the same God that healed yesterday is the same God that wants to heal today. So if you are walking in skepticism or disappointment, there is a way to turn things around in your life. You need to feed your fear with faith. How cool is that? Feed your fear with faith. In just a moment, we're going to show you how sometimes others can help. If you don't have enough faith, sometimes you can borrow faith from others. Can anybody relate? I remember the, the four guys that lowered the guy down through the roof. He may not have had any faith that, that Jesus was going to seal him, but they had faith. I remember when Naaman was dipped seven times in the river, he got upset because he didn't want to go in the dirty water. And if you've ever been to Israel, been baptized in the Jordan River, it's a very muddy-looking river. It's swift, it's cold, it's miserable. It's not a great river. There's other rivers there that are better than the Jordan. But but the prophet said, baptize in this one. And as he went to the river, he got mad. And that little handmaiden said, listen, if he'd have told you to do something elaborate or something expensive or something extravagant, you would have done that. Do this and you'll get your miracle. And so that young lady encouraged him to follow the word of God. He followed the word of God and received a miracle. As we look at the seven miracles, very brief, and for the next few weeks, I want to talk 
a little bit about miracles in the house. If you're here today and you're suffering from high blood pressure, I'm after you. If you're here today and you're struggling with asthma, I'm after you. If you're here today and every season there are allergies and there are frustrations, I'm after you. I want this morning the word to encourage you to such a way that no matter what you need from God, you're going to realize looking at these seven miracles, God can bring that miracle to you and God can change your life and allow you to have a better life and enjoy what he has for you. Who, who wants to live forever if they're going to be miserable? Who wants to live forever if you're going to forget everybody you know? I believe this morning, if there's Alzheimer's in your generation, we bind that by the blood of Jesus, and we declare it will not come into your generation. If your family is under generational curse, second, third generation, we bind that right now, and we say there will not be another generational curse in your life because you bound it, applied the blood to it. Someone asked me yesterday, they said, do you believe in curses? I, I do believe in curses. I believe that there are those that go about cursing people, but the word says a curse without a cause is like a sparrow that cannot land. If you're a child of God, washed by the blood, walking in his word, and a curse comes against you from someone else, if they're not careful, that curse will reverse upon them. As I've had phone calls, Satan has asked me to reverse the curse. They put on me. I said, well, I didn't, I didn't put a curse on you. They said, no, we put a curse on you. And we went, they, had more, they had more belief in the power of my words than a lot of us have. We have more belief in the power at Wendy's and Burger King than we do in the promises of God. And how dare Wendy forget a French fry or a straw? I mean, it's like a major, I mean, we get an, are you with me there? We get a major attitude, but the same God that put the brain in our head and the mouth in our face and the heart to begin to ask him for things is saying, you know what, there's a lot more I'd like to do for you if you would just let me. There's a lot more areas of your life I'd like to see a breakthrough if you would just let me. If you got in your mind, well, I'm just a burnout drug addict, the enemy will milk that for all it's worth. If you're a part of a life that says, well, my dad abandoned my mom, I abandoned my wife, I mean, that's just how you roll. If that's, if that's the mindset you have, the enemy will milk that for the rest of your life. But I believe there's a place he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. I believe there's a hedge that God builds around his kids. I believe there are doors that God will open. I believe there are things that will happen. But we have not because we ask not. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that God is a genie. Speaking of genies, there was a plane wreck and three guys were stranded on an island. I could tell a Bond joke. Two blondes fell into a deep hole. One blonde said the other. Man, it's dark in here. The other one said, I don't know. I can't see. <laughs> was that, a good, that, was a good, that was for Jenny. I wouldn't have a blonde joke for, for Jenny. But three guys in a plane, they wrecked. They're on this island. It's boring. They're, they're miserable. They're burnt out. They're frustrated. They look out in the ocean, and there's a bottle. One swims out, gets the bottle, brings it back, pops the, pops the cork off the bottle, and the genie shows up. And the genie says, well, you know, usually I give one guy three wishes, but since there's three of you, I'll give each one of you a wish. You go first. The guy said, man, I miss my wife. I miss my family. I wish I was back in Detroit. Poof, he, was, he disappeared, went to Detroit. The second guy said, man, I'm not married, but I got a girlfriend. I got a business. I want to get back to where I belong. Poof, he disappeared to Houston. The third guy said, you know, I don't have a wife or a girlfriend, but I sure do miss those two fellows, and I wish they were back. Well, then it costs you. <laughs> that it, that it. But, but a lot of people either play God like a genie or how you twiddle your nose and something happens, or we play God that we have all the answers and we don't need his help. That's why we self-medicate, we self-educate, 
and we, and we pursue the things we enjoy doing, whether or not it has anything to do with the purpose and the plan of God. When I think about this, this miracle number one of turning the water into wine, Jesus proves to us that he has the power over molecules and everything physical. There's nothing in your life that you need that God cannot provide and God cannot do. God makes the impossible and goes one step farther to the impossibler. Possibler. That's not a word. I just made it up. But he'll go from, he'll go from a, a great miracle to an even greater miracle. And the, the first miracle is the water into wine. He walked past six gallons that had 30 gallons of water in it. The water blush became wine, 180 gallons. And you know the story. We may look at it in a minute. The second miracle is the miracle of while he is headed somewhere in John the fourth chapter, a nobleman runs up to Jesus and knights him and honors him and calls him sir, which was a very, very big deal in that generation. Most of you know that I'm referred to as Sir Papa. Most of you know I'm going to take Christine to see Paul McCartney and Sir Paul, Sir Elton. There's just something about that word sir where this nobleman honored and recognized Jesus for who he was. And Jesus said, what do you need? He said, my son is sick. Jesus said, go, your son's fine. The nobleman heads home. He meets an entourage coming towards him and says, hey, your son's alive. He's doing great. And he asked him, but when did it happen? Well, one o'clock yesterday. And in terms of the same time he was talking to Jesus was the same time that God healed his son. And there we learn that God is not tied to geographics. He's not just the God of the mountain, but he's the God of the valley. He's the God of the sea. He's the God of the checkbook. He's a God in every single area of your life. He's not just limited to miracles in Israel. He's not just limited to miracles in California. Wherever two or three gather in his name and call upon his name, there he will be. And there he loves to manifest himself, show up, show off, and show God. Do I have a friend in the building that knows that God has the ability to do that? The third miracle is a chronological miracle where this guy had been sick for 38 years. For 38 years, he had sat by the pool waiting for a breakthrough, waiting for a miracle. And so when Jesus healed him there at the pool, it proves to us it doesn't matter whether you've had this challenge for five minutes or five years or 50 years. Time does not hinder God. He doesn't care how active that cancer is in your body. He don't care what your blood pressure is. He has the ability to deal with those sinuses, with those allergies. He, you, you may have been, your great grandma may have had the same thing that you've got, but God is not tied into geographic. He can come right to where you're at, meet you where you are, and change your life forever. Look at somebody and say forever. The fourth miracle that, that we see, and it really is an incredible miracle, and you don't hear a whole lot about the little boy. His name is not even found in the Bible, but he gave his lunch to Jesus. And I think a lot of people miss the formula of that miracle. The formula is five loaves plus two fish equals 5,000 remainder 12. Did you get it? Five loaves and two fish equal 5,000 remainder 12. Not only did Jesus feed 5,000 men, he fed their wives. And if they were like Jacob and had 12 kids, he fed their kids. So basically, he could have actually fed anywhere from 10 to 12,000 people on five, loaves and, uh, on five loaves and two fish. And here we learn he's the God of multiplicity. Yes. Seven times, 20 times, 30 times. We talked about the fold, the sevenfold, the 30-fold. God's not a God of subtraction. He's not a God of division. He's a God of addition, and he's a God of multiplication. And he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power that works in you. The, the, fifth, the fifth miracle that we see Jesus doing is he walks on water, and he defies gravity. And Pastor Ron and I can relate to a very funny story uh, before 
Perry Kite passed away. He was involved in the youth, uh, the, the, the youth group of, of all of Georgia, and they went to a youth camp, and there was a kid there that got a hold of some Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen tapes, which are great. They're incredible. They're phenomenal. But Kenneth Copeland said, whatever Jesus did, you can do. So he told his counselors, told his friends, says, listen, if Jesus walked on water, I can walk on water. So he took him out to the pool. He stood on the side of the pool. He took his first step, obviously. He, he fell in. He got wet. He didn't walk on water, but didn't shake his faith a whole lot because he got out and tried it again. I, I said, try it seven times. No, try it 70 times seven. No, try it 70 times seven. You, you never know. Maybe one of these times. But, but, but God is not a God that, that, that you, sh you use his abilities and talents to show off. God is the God that he wants to use his abilities and talents to show off to you. Do I have a friend in the house? And there, and there we find in that particular miracle that, that Jesus can defy the laws of gravity. How crazy is that? The sixth miracle, blind man came to Jesus. Jesus took some dirt from the ground, spit upon it. The DNA of God was in that spittle. He mixed it with that clay, put it on the guy's eyes, told the guy to go wash. The guy went and washed his eyes. And lo and behold, whatever was wrong with his eyesight, he was completely restored. And there we find that God is still the creative God. There's a scripture says, if you lack anything, ask my father, they may give it unto you. Again, I say unto you, if you lack anything, ask of God. That actual translation there is, if you need something, ask God for it. And if we don't have it, we'll make it. He's still a creative God. I remember several years ago, probably 33 years ago, I went to Seoul, Korea, and there I ministered in several conferences, and I was part of a, I was part of a team. But in one particular service, the evangelist there went to a deaf and dumb school for kids. There were 13 deaf and dumb kids, and the first thing they heard and said was Jesus. All 13 of those kids were healed, and what was so crazy about the miracle, the 13th kid didn't have eardrums, and God restored. And, you know, they never invited us back because I guess those deaf and dumb schools actually make money funded by the state. Well, when you heal all their patients and they can't draw any money, it's funny, they never ask us to come back. But not only did he open the, the, the hearing to those that were deaf, but he created an eardrum. And listen, if you need something in life, and we have, Pastor Ronald will tell you, you know, I'll just go ahead and tell the story. We were in um, Knoxville at Gerald McGinnis's church. And uh, that was, I believe, that was the week that we learned that you were pregnant with Courtney. And it, it's a great church then. It's a great church now. We have been back. We didn't hurt anybody's feelings. But there was a real strong anointing in the altar. And, Chris, I felt impressed to call a, a girl out, lady out, and I saw her holding a baby. It was hers. And I told her that. I said, I told her what I saw. Her husband came up. Well, they both fell down. I don't know what they did when they laid. I, don't, what, I, I think they just laid there. I'm not sure what you do when you fall out. But she fell out. He fell out. They both fell out. And that, that was pretty cool. So I tried to touch two more people, and they didn't fall out. So I'm, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming God touched him. I'm assuming God blessed him. After the service, look at someone say, after the service. After the service, the pastor got me off and said, hey, we're having a great meeting. We're having a great, we're having a great, we want to go another week. But there's a challenge. The, the mom, the woman you prophesied today does not have the ability to have a child. There have been some things removed, there's been some surgeries, and she does not have what it takes to, to have a child. And I said, well, pastor, all I can say is that's what I, I, that's what I felt like I saw. That's what I felt like, you know, was in my spirit. But I said, oh, you know, you want me to calm it down a little bit? I'll calm it. I said, no, don't, don't, just go ahead and flow. And I'm here after you leave. I'll be here to encourage them and share with them. I said, okay, one year later, 
Look at someone and say, one year later. Lenore City, great, great church in Lenore. We're having a great move of God. Sunday night after church, a couple comes up to me. They're holding a baby, and they said, do you remember me? Well, no, I didn't because we did. I don't know how many states, countries, nations we have done in that, in that window. I said, no, I don't. I'm sorry. I said, we are from the, the Park, West, Park West Church of God in Knoxville. I said, yes, I do remember. You're the one that couldn't have a baby. And she said, yes. And she, had, she was holding this baby that she had birthed naturally. What is he said? And she carried the baby full term. And I said, well, did you name the baby Hank? <laughs> and they said, no. I said, you know, that really kind of hurt my feelings because God used me. Something should be named after me for that great miracle. But God restored the things in her body that she needed to have a baby. And listen, I don't care what your challenges are today. If he can restore an eardrum and he can restore ovaries and, and, and make it where you can have a baby, there's nothing he cannot do. Do I have a, do I have a friend in the building? When I, think about, when I think about the last miracle found in the book of John, it was at the tomb of Lazarus. And what is so crazy, crazy is that today we have a tradition that says, if someone dies, you wait three days before you bury them because there was a disease in the Middle East around the time of Christ. There was a disease that would attack the body, and it made, it made it to appear that you were dead, but you were not dead. You were in a coma, and after two or three days, you would come out of that coma, and you would come back to life. And they didn't learn this or understand this. They started, they started removing some, some coffins to another location, and they found by the attitude of the inside of the coffin that that person had been buried alive. So that's why they wait, that's why they wait three days, just in case. And, and, and now today, we will usually go three days before there's a funeral. But on the fourth day, when all possibility of him being alive was gone, matter of fact, they said, you know, by now he stinks, and you know the story. Roll away the stone and see the glory of God. They had to do something to see a miracle or a myth. They had to take the effort to roll away the stone. Now, he could have rolled it. He could have rolled it away with the power of the mind. He was God. He, he made the stone. He could sure move it. But he wanted them to be involved in the miracle. And I'll, I'll get with that in just I think there are things that God wants to do in your life that you're part of the miracle. You're part of the story. Look at your friend and say, I'm part of your story. I'm part of your, your testimony. I'm part of your, your breakthrough. When I think of the three greatest miracles found in the Gospel of John, first of all, that the Holy Spirit would come to a virgin and say, you're going to be mother of the Most High to me. The, the Immaculate Conception of Jesus Christ to me is probably the greatest miracle of all time. The second greatest miracle would be the miracle of resurrection, where after that third day, he got out of the tomb. He, he walked. People saw him. He lives at the right of the Father. The third great miracle is that he ascended into heaven. And we look at those three great miracles tucked into the, in the four Gospels. But, you know, every one of those miracles has, has come upon us. We have been born again. We were dead in sins, and now that we're alive, we've been resurrected with Christ. It's been said three times this, this morning, the same Christ that raised the dead dwells in you. And the third miracle is we have a promise that he's going to come. The dead in Christ is going to rise first. Then we which are alive and remain and be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Does that excite anybody in this house? I almost couldn't read my handwriting, but I think I can decipher it. Here's what I wrote. To receive a major miracle, there probably has to be a great problem. To receive... But a lot of us don't want to experience the problem so we can receive the overcoming of the miracle. 
A lot of us are, will, will speak things that are not, and we will declare things that are not, and we know that they are, and God wants to honor them and bless them. But this word pride is very powerful. It's very dangerous. There are people that do, they, they will not even acknowledge to themselves they have a problem or a challenge. Most of them are narcissistic. But if we can deal with that narcissistic nature and cast all our care upon him and lay, lay ourselves at the feet of him and get to know him, we'll probably get a breakthrough. We'll probably get a miracle. As a child, the angel warned Mary and Joseph. They felt a nudge to take Jesus out of the country. They went to Egypt. We're not sure what happened, but somewhere in that transition, they came back to, to Israel. They made a 63-mile journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. On their way home three days in the journey, they realized that Jesus was not with them. They start freaking out. They turn three days and go back to Jerusalem. And he's there in the temple teaching the priests and the prophets about the things of God. And the Bible says they, they were amazed at his, at, his, at his knowledge. They were amazed at his lessons. And when he, the parents went to get him, Jesus said, you should have known I'd have been about my father's business. Okay, how crazy is that if at the age of 12, his wisdom had the ability to confine, confound all of those that were knowledgeable what happened between the age of 12 and 30? Did he ever raise a dead sparrow from the grave? Did he ever reach out and touch one of his friends that had a cold? You wonder how, how I mean, you talk about the best kept secret from the age of 12 to 30. We, we hear absolutely nothing at all about Jesus except when he was 12. And then all of a sudden he appears at a wedding. And the Bible says that at this wedding they had run out of wine. Wine represents joy. That couple ran a joy very early in the relationship. It's a good thing that Jesus was a guest at their ceremony. Mary goes to Jesus and says, hey, they have no wine. They have no wine. Four words. They have no wine. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do about it? My hour has not yet come. And if you've been around me a while, I believe that from the time of his first miracle, it began a clock that, that ended at Calvary. And so Jesus knew if I perform a miracle today, then a, then a clock begins to tick down and life as I know it is going to be lost. I'm going to lay down my life for many. So Jesus makes a decision and he tells the servants to fill the six ceremonial water pots full. They held 30 gallons apiece. And then after they filled the, the water pots with, with water, he told the servants, go and dip from the water pots and serve the guests. Uh, I'd have had a tough time with that. If I was the guy to put the water in the pot, and then I was told to take the water out of the pot and to give it to somebody, I probably wouldn't have done it. I mean, I've, I'm just, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings by giving them water when they're expecting to get wine. But there's something about obeying the nudges in your life. It was, it was a nudge from his mother. Matter of fact, his mother obviously must have heard from God, obviously must have been motivated by God because she had never before asked Jesus to perform a miracle. And in that 28-year window, or, or I'm sorry, 18-year window, probably her mom died, probably her dad died. She could have asked Jesus to perform a miracle, but she didn't. But she felt a nudge and said, for such a time is this, this is time for you to step up and become what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. I'm not saying that Mary told him what to do. She did not. She just nudged him. Then she looked at the servant and says, whatever he says to do, 
do it. That reminds me of Naaman. That reminds me of the prophets walking across the Jordan. They had to get in the water before the water parted. They had to lure the guy down to Jesus before he was healed. Jesus had to get to the water, the pool of Bethesda, before there was a miracle. If you are not a nudger in someone else's life, then be one. One word. One smile. I'm reading a book written by a tremendous writer. He has a tremendous church. He has several satellite churches. Uh, he's a great speaker, a better writer than his speaker. But one day in a, in a high school essay or a, a, a homework assignment, uh, he wrote an essay concerning something about the Bible. And his teacher commented and said, have you ever thought about being a minister? You're a very good writer. You're a very good communicator. And, and that one word of that, of that word of encouragement from that professor, he began to pursue ministry. And that was, the, that was the place where he jumped off and took a dive because someone bragged on him. Someone said nice, something nice about him. There was a smile. There was a word of encouragement. Be a word of encouragement to somebody in your life. Let the Holy Spirit give you the ability to nudge and, and, and to compliment and to confirm and to be able to say, you know what? I'm not saying the Lord told me this, but have you thought about this? Have you, have you thought about that and see if you can make a difference in someone else's life because I promise you if you make a difference in someone else's life God will send somebody to make a difference in your life do I have a, a friend in the house I wanted today to get a blackboard so that I could effectively uh, demonstrate the miracle of turning water into wine how ironic that water covers 71 percent of the world how ironic that your body is made up of 65% of water. It is tasteless, yet when you're hot and thirsty, it's the best satisfier. Yeah. It's better than a Dr. Pepper. It's better than Gatorade. It's even better than my mom's homemade iced tea. There's just something about the taste of water. H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. When the mother came to Jesus and said, they have no wine, and he turned the water into wine. That is a process called glycosis. And Hannah, this will inter interest you. Water turned into wine is H2O equals C to the second power, helium to the second power, oxygen healing. That's the actually formula of wine. But for the, in order for the water to become wine, it had to go through over 100 steps to become fermented, to become wine. So if I could read you the formula of what actually happened that day. I mean, if you never took chemistry, this is going to mean absolutely nothing. If you've never taken physics in, in school, this will mean nothing. So just get a piece of gum out and start chewing that while those of us that have had physics and chemistry can relate. Are you ready? Carbon to the 6, hydrogen to the 12, oxygen to the 6, plus 2 potassiums, plus an oxygen, plus 2 potassiums, plus 2 carbons, plus potassium to the 4th power, Transition to two carbon hydrogen to the second power, carbon oxygen, carbon oxygen, oxygen, plus two potassiums, plus one carbon, plus one H2OC3, two NADH plus two H2O plus two H equals wine. What a miracle. What? It wasn't just water that he put Kool Aid in, it wasn't just wine that he put a tea bag and he put sugar in. But it went through the entire process of fermenting the grape, of, of making, the, making the water turn to wine. I mean, how phenomenal is that? And I want to conclude with this. And this will be my only conclusion. But I have several, several notes concerning 
this conclusion. Not only on the third day, which usually means resurrection, did he turn the water into wine. But Hebrews 9 and 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In the Old Testament, if a man sinned, he purchased a turtle dove, a lamb, a goat, a calf. Blood was shed. The man was forgiven. At the Last Supper, he took a piece of bread and a cup of wine, and he broke the bread and said, this represents my body. Then he took the cup of wine and said, this represents the blood which is shed for many. So Hannah, not only did he turn water into wine, he turned wine into blood for you and me. And the Bible says in Isaiah 51 and 17, he drank it to the last drop. Drained it. I have never been to a, a wine tasting uh, vineyard. I've been in Napa Valley several times. I've preached in Napa Valley twice. But I've never actually gone to where the con con connoisseurs or the Sommeliers, sommeliers, I think it's S-O-M-M-I-L-E-R-S. They actually will take, they'll take a, a, a cup of wine and they'll swirl it and they'll look at it and then they'll take little baby tastes, squish it around their mouth, swallow it, and judge the wine. I think a lot of times that's the way that we treat the grace, the mercy, and the favor of God. Little swigs, little communion Size, drinks, and they were done. When he wants you to take that cup that represents joy and drain it to the very last drop. He wants you to get an attitude. He wants you to know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the things that you're coming against, there's a purpose for, there's a purpose for the test is to give you a testimony so you can say, I've been to the river I've been baptized. I've been washed by the blood of a lamb. My garments are clean. They've been purified. I've been washed in the blood of a lamb. When I think about that, when I think about that nudge, I, I just, I cannot, I cannot help but see Mary, who knew what Jesus was because she remembered 30 years ago what the angel told her, knew what he had the power to do, knew that she was getting him committed by pushing him out of the nest. I couldn't help but think about that mama eagle that feeds that eaglet meal after meal after meal and then realizes that that nest is too crowded and that eagle was born to fly. And if that eagle doesn't learn how to fly, a rattlesnake, the number one enemy of the baby eaglet, will come to that nest when mom and dad are off hunting and will destroy that baby eagle. There are things in your life that you were born to do. And the Bible talks about the sons of Barnabas, the New Testament church. They were called the sons of encouragement. I really, really believe this with all my heart. I believe if you allow the Lord to follow the nudges that he puts in your heart and you, you, you follow up on the nudges and obey the Lord, it may, be, it, may be a, it may be a wild, crazy word. It might be a wild, crazy thought. It, you might think to yourself, they're going to think I'm nuts. There's no way that this can be. But if, but if you'll follow that nudge, there was a gentleman on an airplane was reading the book in the pit with a lion on a snowy day. 
And in that book, we gave that book to every man in this house several years ago, credible writer. But in that book, it says that God will strategically place you in positions where he wants to nudge you and encourage you to be a blessing to others. Hannah, he's reading that book. And while he's reading that book on the plane, a young lady, 17 years of age, sat down next to him and uh, something just nudged him to say, say hello to her. And he looked over and said hello. And she gave him that look like, don't talk to me. And this is my armrest. <laughs> I don't know how many you, but you, you, there's always one flight that somebody hogs the armrest. I don't know, but they, but she gave him that kind of look. So he's sitting there on the plane and the Lord nudges him again. He says, but Lord, I'm, I'm going to make her mad if I, obviously she doesn't want to talk. Obviously. And the Lord said, who do you want to offend? Her or me? And so here's what he did. He looked over and he said, hey, it's obvious you're going through some great trauma and some stress. And if you feel like unloading on a complete stranger will help, I'm here. Be glad to listen. That, that little nudge, that little word of, of encouragement, you know what she did? She looked at him and said, I'm pregnant. And my boyfriend has thrown me to the curb. I stole my dad's credit card. I bought a, a, a plane ticket. I'm going to get off this plane. I'm going to have an abortion. Through the process of that flight, not only did he lead her to the Lord, but when they got off the plane, she called on his phone, her mom and dad, and they were ecstatic. They came and got her, and they walked her through the, the full pregnancy, and a beautiful child was born. One, one nudge. And Hebrews 10 and 24, if you're taking notes, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love, and good deeds. I, I like that word spur. Uh, if you've never ridden a horse, I have never, Angel, ever spurred a horse. But I've seen people training horses that would put the spurs on. And, of course, I'm a Doc Holliday fan. I think he had, he had spurs on. But what spurs will do will get you motivated when you're not motivated. I mean, I promise you, you, you dig a three-inch spur in the flank of a horse, he's either going to throw you or he's going to respond. And I believe every one of us can leave this day with, a, with the ability, with the desire of, Lord, use me to be a blessing to someone else. And then in turn, bring someone into my life that could be a blessing to me. You'll never know. You'll never know what a pat on the back. You'll never know what a word of encouragement. You'll, you'll never know how one word out of your mouth can make change. Call a little high school student into, into a pulpit ministry. You never know. And we believe that God is going to use you. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed.